Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Would you please pray with me? Loving God, we thank you for your word that enlivens our hearts. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are a rock and you are our redeemer. And to you be all the glory and honor and praise now and forever. Amen. We have this morning in the passage that Nippur just read for us a few minutes ago from the Gospel of Mark, one of the traditional scripture readings for the first Sunday of Lent. And it's the passage dealing with the baptism of Jesus and the time of temptation in the Judean wilderness. The reason the Lenten season is 40 days long, of course, is because we remember among other biblical events, Jesus' 40 days in the desert when he was tempted by Satan. And despite the many trials that he experienced, he clung to God. He clung to the word of God in order to rise above and overcome those trials that he faced. During Lent, then, we take time to reflect on how often we ourselves actually fail to rise above many of the temptations that we face and instead all too often yield to our questionable impulses. So in Lent, we lean into our need for God's forgiveness and guidance, uh, and we renew our commitment to God's call on our lives. The Gospel of Mark's particular version of this event lacks some of the more colorful details that you might be familiar with if you've read Matthew's version of the temptation in the desert. Here in Mark, there is no mention of fasting and near starvation, although he probably was fasting, but there's no mention of it and there's nothing about the content of the temptations that he faced. And we know that he was uh, tempted to turn stones into bread because he was hungry. Uh, He was tempted to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple in order to publicly prove to everyone that he was the Messiah. And he was tempted to, uh, by uh, the temptation to inherit all of the kingdoms of earth, if he would bow down to Satan. Mark doesn't mention this though. Mark doesn't give us anything about the final outcome of this time in the wilderness either. We just have to assume that it turned out well or the remaining 15 chapters would never have been written and we'd have a very abrupt ending to Jesus' story. What Mark's account lacks in detail though, it makes up for in its urgency to give us a sense of Jesus' identity and mission. 
The Gospel of Mark as a whole does not begin with a birth story the way some of the other Gospels do. There are no shepherds or angels or wise men. The first eight verses of the Gospel of Mark are about John the Baptist, and he is preparing the way for the one who is to come. He announces that the Messiah is coming. And the next thing we know, Jesus is here. And God anoints him as his son and calls him the beloved one. In Mark, there is no song and dance as there is at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. There is no cryptic mysticism as in John. There isn't a long list of begots and begots and begots like we find in the Gospel of Matthew. No, Mark is a straight shooting kind of gospel writer, and he just gets straight to the point. But just because Mark is light on details does not mean that he's light on significance. Mark is a very rich gospel. The first few verses of Mark offer us a picture. It's a picture of a man who goes from what seems like complete anonymity in one moment to the height of glory in the next, and then finally to the point, to the pain of total isolation and adversity at the end of the gospel. It's the kind of plot that we might find in a great Hollywood movie. So here we see a seemingly ordinary and previously unknown man, a, a blue-collar worker, so to speak, from a small rural town far from the nation's cultural and political hub. He doesn't wear any fine clothes or expensive jewelry. In fact, there's absolutely nothing that would set him apart from the crowds of ordinary people who were gathered there by the Jordan River waiting to be baptized by John. Then this man rose from the water like all of the men before him. Only this time, something extraordinary happened. The heavens opened up. And the voice of the Holy Spirit sounds in his ears. And in one instant, Jesus suddenly has a complete and profound understanding that the time has come for him to do what he came to earth to do. With this revelation, though, the Holy Spirit then sends him not out into the community, not back home <laughs> to have lunch and a rest. No, he, he, and he's not sent back to the synagogue. This is not a, a comforting moment or the moment of elation that we might expect. No, after this happens, he's driven out into the desert with no other human beings where he is alone and tormented. It seems strange to us we're more used to stories where a great dramatic moment like this would drive the hero to greater determination for achieving success and glory. But this isn't the way it is with Jesus. There in the wilderness, he finds himself basking not in the glow of his incredible spiritual experience, but under attack. 
feeling alone and struggling with wild beasts who could devour him. So this is not like a Hollywood movie after all. In fact, it seems much more like our lives. There's no Hollywood ending to this narrative. Just like us, Jesus faces peaks and valleys. He, had, he faces adversity and uncertainty, wild beasts, so to speak. Just at the very moment when he had experienced a new sense of the urgency about the purpose for his life. For those who answer the call of God, for those who follow the way of Jesus, there will be temptations. There will be wild beasts. For Jesus' call and commission meant conflict. And beloved son meant struggle. There are blessings, yes, but they come with responsibilities. After the high point of you are my son whom I love comes the dark valley of tempted by Satan in the desert. Although the details are certainly unique in Jesus' case, this passage presents a picture of a very common experience for people, especially for followers of Jesus. It's that, it's that aha moment, the, the beginning moment of a whole new understanding of life where so much suddenly becomes clearer to us and we feel a new energy, a new sense of purpose and, and a renewed excitement for life. But these times of resolution, of acceptance and newfound purpose of setting out on a great mission are almost inevitably followed by times of testing. This is the reality of Christian discipleship. A life of true discipleship, when we dedicate our lives to following Christ, often begins with a lift, a sense of determination, of joy, or a, a rebirth into a new life. But then almost immediately, there can come a time of doubt and wonder. Am I really on the right track? Or have I just gone off the deep end? Once the emotional high gives way to day-to-day -day reality in life with all of its problems, a nagging little thought inside our head says, this Christian life isn't quite what I thought it would be. And we can be tempted to abandon the course. And, and who can resist abandoning it when it seems like the whole world sees things differently? When the whole world see th sees things differently from the way God seems to see things. It seems we're all alone in our Christian convictions. We can feel this kind of pressure, especially if we work in a highly competitive work environment. Young people experience this kind of pressure very strongly in high school or university settings. Adversity is an unavoidable part 
of the Christian journey. And in the Bible, it's actually shown to be a necessary part of our spiritual growth. The truth is we don't usually grow stronger in our faith during times of ease and rest, but during times of trial, when we're forced to truly exercise our faith. All of Christ's apostles faced tremendous challenges and had to decide whether to continue following him or to return to their old life. Our faith becomes stronger when we face trials and then experience for ourselves God's promise of faithfulness. When we face the wild beasts and experience the angels coming to our aid. As the old saying goes, in order to realize the worth of an anchor, you have to feel the stress of the storm. There's a classic book in the Christian tradition called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And he was a German monk who lived during the Middle Ages or early Renaissance era, depending on who's dating, you believe. And when I read this book, The Imitation of Christ, a few years ago, one of the greatest insights I gleaned was this. He writes... Your tardiness in turning to prayer is the greatest obstacle to heavenly consolation. For before you pray earnestly to me, you first seek many comforts and take pleasure in outward things. I want to repeat that. Your tardiness in turning to prayer is the greatest obstacle to heavenly consolation. For before you pray earnestly to me, you first seek many comforts and take pleasure in outward things. I can relate to that so much. Often when I have a problem that I'm dealing with, the first thing I think about is how do I solve the problem? And then later I think about, oh, maybe I should pray about it. Often we turn to God in prayer as a last resort. When we have exhausted all of our other options. And, and you've heard, it, heard the saying, you know, oh, well, all we can do now is pray. Right? Now, don't get me wrong. It's still a good idea to turn to God in prayer even then. <laughs> but we're march, much farther ahead if we turn to God as our first resort rather than our last. I mean, even Jesus had God's angels ministering to him when he was facing down wild beasts. So why do we think that we don't need that? God has promised to help us in our times of adversity, and we make everything easier on ourselves if we make prayer our first resort instead of our last. Adversity in the wildernesses of our lives takes the shape of many different wild beasts. It could come in the form of colleagues who may take offense at our Christian values or or ridicule us for going to church. 
It may be that when we identify ourselves as Christians, suddenly people think we're crazy or weird at worst, or maybe they think we're soft, definitely too soft to be competitive in a high-powered world. Adversity may come from family members or friends who, who don't want us to change or they observe in us new behaviors, new attitudes, or new ways of thinking and mutter amongst themselves, well, who does she think she is now? Adversity may even come from within our own selves because of self-consciousness or low self-esteem. We struggle to recognize this, this new dedicated Christ-centered person as really us, as ourselves, when when actually what we are when we're living in the very center of God's will is the best version of ourselves. This morning's scripture passage captures the inevitability of adversity on the Christian journey. If Jesus himself faced adversity, then why wouldn't we? But the text also shows us God's promise to us when we face adversity. Although we have a sense of Jesus' human feelings of isolation, it is very clear that Jesus is not at any point alone. Oh, Satan and the wild beasts are with him, but more importantly, so are God's angels. And they are ministering to him, caring for him, nurturing him, strengthening him, encouraging him. And he knows they are there for him. And he draws on them for strength because theirs is the strength of the almighty God of the universe. God's promise to us as Christians is not a life free of adversity. God's promise is that we can turn to him in our times of adversity and trust in him to give us strength and courage to get through them. We don't have a life that is free of wild beasts, but we have angels to minister to us, to help us face the wild beasts with courage and faith. Thomas Akempis, who I referred to earlier, suggests that adversity is something that we should welcome on our Christian journey, even though that seems counterintuitive, because of the great spiritual benefits we receive in these times in our lives. Now, I, I don't mean that we need to um, muster up a false sense of joy <laughs> in times of trial. That can often verge on, on living in an unhealthy state of denial. But I do agree that, that seeing our times of trial as helpful to our spiritual growth can help us to get through them. And so maybe we shouldn't seek to avoid the discomfort of trials at all costs, but rather when we find ourselves in a time of trial, use it as an opportunity to grow closer to God. I want you to consider 
for a moment, one of my favorite stories. And if you've heard me preach before, I've shared this story so many times in so many churches. Maybe I've shared it here before. I don't know. I love this story. I'm not actually convinced that all of it, all of this story holds water, but I love it anyway. <laughs> and it, and it sounds like it's plausible. And anyway, it's a great illustration. And it's the story uh, of wild cod, uh, or of codfish, which are a, a big commercial business on the East Coast. And then when gro uh, growth in, in public demand for codfish began to grow a few decades ago uh, in places far from the eastern shoreline, this posed a problem for the fishing companies who would need to ship the codfish uh, inland to these new markets. So at first, some tried to freeze the cod and, and ship the frozen cod uh, inland. But the freeze, of course, took away a lot of the flavor of the fish. So that wasn't any good. So, so the shippers, fishing companies experimented with shipping them alive in, in giant tanks of salt water. Um, and it turned out that that was even worse. Not only was it really expensive, but the cod still lost its flavor. And in addition, the texture of the fish became soft and mushy. Finally, some creative person solved the problem in the most innovative manner. The codfish were placed in a tank of seawater along with their natural enemy, a saltwater breed of catfish. And the story goes that from the time the cod left the coast until it arrived at its destination, those ornery catfish chased the cod all over the tank. And as you can guess, when the cod arrived at its market, they were as fresh as when they were first caught. No loss of flavor, no mushy texture. If anything, it was even better than before. On the, on the Christian journey, we may sometimes feel like we're a lonely cod in a tank full of catfish. But without adversity, we would just become soft and mushy Christians with no flavor. There will be adversity on the Christian journey. And God will minister to us in the midst of it. And will use that adversity so that we may become stronger in our faith. And that we can learn to trust God completely. We can trust God because of his promises. And in this scripture passage, we are shown a God who always fulfills his promises. Just as God sent angels to attend to Jesus in his time of trial, God cares for us and gives us strength when we are tempted to abandon our call to Christian living and mission. God has given us a community of fellow believers who share our faith and who sometimes become angels to us, encouraging and reminding us of God's promises. God has promised to always be with us and not only to be with us, he has promised to give us all that we need 
to face our trials, to face adversity, and to come out even stronger than before. Thanks be to God. Amen.